Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about uh, the Floyd Chauvin mistrial. Harvard-trained doctor, Dr. Peter Bregan, joins me. America Can We Talk membership and the truth is emerging about January 6th at the Capitol. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. We talked yesterday on the show a little bit about the idea of due process, and my lawyer head goes to this because I want to urge people to understand due process is one of the most fundamental guarantees of the American Constitution, of American jurisprudence, and it's really one of the most fundamental guarantees that tells individual citizens, no matter what the accusation is against you, no matter what the public perception is, you have a right to a fair trial with a whole laundry list of protections our system builds in. I wanna go back and talk a little bit about the George Floyd trial, um, the trial of the officer involved in the shooting and the death of George Floyd, and I wanna hit three quick points. Number one, last night, the defense attorney, the attorney defending Officer Chauvin, made a motion for a mistrial. And he basically said to the judge, he moved from mistrial on the argument that the protests outside of the, uh, of, outside of the courthouse, some of the language used by the prosecutors in their closing arguments, that have unique rules in Minnesota, this is state court, remember, so unique rules in Minnesota relating to what you can say in their closing argument. So he had arguments, so the lawyer for Officer Chauvin argued about the crowds outside, and he argued about the language used by the prosecutors in closing arguments, and he pointed out Maxine Waters, an actual member of Congress who was outside the courthouse making very incendiary statements about the trial. And, and it felt very close to threatening the jury, you better find him guilty or else. Well, I want to have Matt, Matt, the wonderful producer. He has a very short clip to play. This is the judge's response to the motion for mistrial. Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about the unacceptability of uh, anything less than a murder conviction and talk about being confrontational, but you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch and our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional uh, material that would prejudice this jury. They have been told not to watch the news. I trust they are following those instructions and that there is not in any way uh, a prejudice to the defendant. Okay, I wanna add on, I didn't get to the point in the clip I sent to Matt. The judge had made the statement that possibly what Maxine Waters has said will provide grounds for a reversal. If there is a criminal conviction, will provide grounds for a reversal um, of, the, of the jury's decision. And so this judge is saying, and I gotta say, I, I've tried cases in front of a jury, and I know that you know most people who serve on juries, 
They try to do the right thing. They try to be honest and fair. I mean, you really go, it's a very grueling process to choose a jury, especially in a huge case like this. But the notion of relying on the jury not to be watching the news, I mean, I, I hope they're all moral and uh, noble people who do not do it. But the temptation as a juror, as you're sitting there all day watching the evidence, of course you're interested in what the media is saying about the trial. The jury is now sequestered because they now have the case, they're, being, they're delivering, uh, deliberating. But it's a really dicey question whether this judge should have on the grounds already what was presented uh, found, you know, granted the motion for a mistrial because this is a guy, an officer of the entire country saw the video involving his arrest um, of George Floyd. Whatever it is you think about that, he's entitled to due process. And one other point I want to make in, that clo in closing out the first five is this. I didn't get to this yesterday, but a whole other aspect of this uh, idea of a trial where you're guaranteed due process, a presumption of innocence, is the idea that witnesses are supposed to feel comfortable to testify in court to tell whatever whether they are you know eyewitnesses to some sequence of events or they're expert witnesses and in this case there was an expert witness who testified for the defense and he's a former police officer and testified with respect to the question of whether or not the hold the physical restraining hold that officer chauvin used on george floyd was permissible is that okay to do and basically the answer was it was permissible under Minneapolis Police Department authority at that time. It's since been changed, but at the time it was permissible. So this guy, this officer, uh, this former officer who testified, uh, used to live in California. He had a home in California, um, and but he had sold it. So he's moved out. The home is owned by somebody else, and the new owner... During this trial, the new owner of this home, I think it was Santa Rosa, California, wherever it was, uh, literally walked out one morning out of his home uh, that he had purchased from this police officer and discovered the, the bloody severed head of a pig. This is activists of some kind trying to threaten a witness trying to threaten him about the, the testimony related to whether or not this officer acted appropriately. This is so egregious and so outrageous. And I want to close this first five by saying this. I do not know if those people who did that brought the severed head to the police officer witnesses home. I don't know if they're so outraged by all of the clamor about this case that they actually thought this was kind of a good idea, a moral justified idea. But I want you to think of the level of outrage. I mean, you might be mad about something. You might go home and tell your husband or wife, I am livid. You might write a letter to the editor. You might tell your 10 best friends when you're getting dinner together what you think about something. To take the action of severing a pig's head, locating the home address of a witness and driving there, it obviously must be done at cover of night to leave a severed pig's head on someone's porch you don't even know because you're angry. The level of anger in involved in that kind of decision is, is, is off the charts. Or the other choice, of course, is this was a paid bunch of thugs who delivered the severed pig's head to this officer's house. Either way, conduct was outrageous, and yet another example of how we're making a mockery of, a, of the most noble criminal justice system on the planet Earth. It isn't perfect, and it can always be improved upon most noble criminal justice system in this on the planet Earth being at the very least interfered with by belligerent rioters, by members of Congress, 
speaking out outside the courtroom and by people who are either paid or outraged to intimidate witnesses. This is a disgusting commentary. This is a disgusting picture of where the criminal justice system stands in America. And in great part, it is due to the agitation of the left who simply believes we don't have to have a trial. Maxine Waters is saying that. We don't really care what the evidence was. We don't care what the witnesses said. We don't care what the standard of law is. We don't care what the judge instructed the jury. We've decided he's guilty, so therefore he must be guilty. And as I really truly am closing up the first five today, President Biden spoke at the White House today and expressed, he didn't say better, he wasn't as bad as Maxine Waters saying you better find him guilty. He said, I sure hope the court, the jury gets to the right verdict. The president weighing in on a pending case before a jury in this country, outrageous, irresponsible, I, I mean, I can't even think of the right words, immoral, unethical, terrible and it was reported that president biden had called the family of george floyd last night called them at home to express his concern his condolences all of that i understand calling someone if you lost a loved one in any circumstance that exists on earth it's a wonderful and gracious thing to call the family and say truly sorry truly sorry you know may i help you anything i can do to help those kind of loving gestures this is a president scoring political points because obviously it wasn't a private call. He places this call, it's all over the media today. This is a president trying to score political points by calling George Floyd's family to apologize. The whole thing's a mess. And honestly, I'll go back to where I started yesterday with and today. If you don't have due process honored in this country, you have literally destroyed the ability to have a just criminal justice system. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. So I said at the start of the show, we have a guest joining us. I want to say a little bit about him, then he'll join us in just a moment. This is a doctor named Peter Bregan, and um, he's a psychiatrist. And we could talk a lot about the things he's done, the advances he's done in the world of psychiatry and bringing to uh, light the concerns about whether or not people can adequately give informed consent if they are in some compromised situation of any kind. He's worked at those kind of things. He's worked on... Uh, trying to challenge electronic, I can't even say the name, electronic therapy, shock basically shock treatment, questioning the morality, the legality of that. Uh, but he has a new book out, or almost out, and um, I'm, the book we're going to talk about is called COVID-19 and the Global Predators, and the subtitle is We Are the Prey, as in P-R-E-Y, Prey. So, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey, Dr. Peter Bregan, uh, medical doctor, psychiatrist, um, and uh, trained in part at Harvard. And he's written a book really about COVID-19 and a, a whole host of issues surrounding COVID-19. What I wanna focus mostly on today is his notions, his views on the subject of vaccine passports. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Peter Bregan to the show. Uh, it's wonderful uh, to be here. That was a great five-minute intro you did. Um, thank you for doing that. We need people to speak out honestly about this. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. Okay, so I know you've written other books. I'm not going to get into them, but you are really a prolific writer in addition to having testified and, and uh, been an activist in various ways. I, I want to just get right to the... I think I want to get right to the COVID things. I mean, I think it'd be so interesting to, to hear about why you got involved in challenging uh, certain procedures that were being done for patients in mental hospitals. Um, and actually, yeah, this very quickly, you got involved in all of this because there were procedures being done at medical hospitals, mental hospitals, 
that it appeared as though the patients had given consent for them, but you were challenging that. Can you quickly tell you what, what your point was in getting involved in that? Well, I got started trying to stop and was successful in stopping the return of old-fashioned lobotomies and electroshock treatment, <clears throat> which is mutilating the brain of the person. You can do it with electricity, you can do it with scalpels, you can put in poisons, all those things were being done. And uh, the what you're talking about is a very key trial called the Kamowitz trial, in which a patient in a Michigan State hospital uh, consented, supposedly, uh, in fact, consented to the Commissioner of Mental Health <laughs> of the state to have experimental psychosurgery. They were going to put electrodes in his head. They were going to stimulate him, experiment on him, and then burn holes, basically, to correct his uh, his violence. And it turned out he wasn't violent at all. And uh, in fact, the uh, once the trial started, a three-judge panel, they just let him go. And then the judges insisted on stopping or examining at least the further experiments that were planned. I was simultaneously conducting an international campaign to stop psychosurgery, so I was a natural for the case. And what I tried to show the judges was not only was this intervention only going to work by blunting, subduing, making a person docile, which is a key to understanding totalitarianism, authoritarianism, abuses of all kind, aim at making people more docile. And I uh, gave the uh, history of the hospitals to show that the Nuremberg Code would apply, that if you're confined to an institution where you have no freedom, where you're subject to abuse, where you're threatened, uh, you're just not volunteering when you volunteer for something. So. The Jews weren't volunteering for freezing experiments when they knew they were going to go to the gas chambers as an alternative. So uh, we ended up winning that case and it stopped all the psychosurgery in federal and state facilities. Now, recently I started applying the Nuremberg Code to nursing homes and jails and saying, since the vaccines are entirely experimental, they have not been officially approved as safe and effective. They're approved under an emergency code that's set up by the federal government called the EUA. And uh, basically they're experimenting on all of us. There's no question about that. The methods are unique. They've never been studied in animals or humans for the um, RNA uh, vaccines. And as I was talking about this, my wife Ginger, who's my co-author and my partner and uh, just an amazing uh, uh, intellect. And she said, well, that's true, but isn't that the same condition we have in society today? Our friends are afraid to refuse the vaccine because they, well, they can't, they can't go to Cornell or some other universities that they may not be allowed to work. Uh, they may not be allowed to fly. They may be required to have a passport to, that they took the vaccine in order literally to have a normal life. Doesn't the Nuremberg Code apply to our nation because we're becoming a totalitarian nation? I said, Ginger, that's brilliant. And we wrote a blog about that. And I'm just really grateful to get a chance to pass this concept on, on to you. I, I love the analogy. And actually, I love that you work with your wife. My husband and I work together a lot, too. It, it's, it's such a blessing, such a great thing. Oh, um, my God, yeah. Yep. Okay. I wish so you were here to straighten my collar. <laughs> You look sensational. You look great. Okay. okay. So um, 
on the subject of this, this uh, passport thing, there's so many aspects I want to go at, but to start with, the whole concept of a COVID passport, the concept is you either showing that you are immune because you have, um, you've had the disease and you're now carrying the antibodies, or you've had the vaccination, and so you're supposedly protected, but you know, among them, so the notion is that this would give you kind of your, as you're saying, your ticket to get freedom again. But that presumes that somehow the COVID passport is keeping you, is, I, I mean, I, is, I may have not said, I'm not a doctor, I'm a lawyer, but the COVID, the whole idea of the vaccine is to keep you from contracting the disease. So what difference does it make if I've got the vaccine and I, I think I'm safe, why does anyone else, I mean, everyone has the choice to take the vaccine or not but so what's the point of having a passport you're kind of telling people uh it's it's really just a, an arm twisting method to force you to get a vaccine because the the covid vaccine itself doesn't prevent the spread of covid in any other ways in and the planet correct well that's where you're absolutely correct they're not accepting that they're using pseudoscience that'll stop you from becoming a carrier stop you from from actually getting the uh, the disease and spreading it, and so on and so forth, and it actually, at best, these vaccines will give you a, a lesser illness. But frankly, and I, I've come out as a scientist and as a physician, and 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 with other physicians, said the vaccines are probably far more dangerous than COVID-19. Right now, the um, CDC is vastly inflating the death rates of COVID-19 to terrorize people. All this, the whole COVID-19 is a cover story for totalitarianism and enriching billionaires. It's twofold. Weakening America so that we can have this globalist governance outside of democracies, outside of democratic republics, outside of patriotic nations. I mean, they want a global mishmash that they can manipulate and control. That's the purpose number two and purpose number one, which they're achieving as well as is, is, is getting billions and billions of dollars uh, through the vaccines. But the, uh, the ultimate point is that none of it is really about medicine. If it were, all the vaccines would have been stopped because the CDC has disclosed that at this point over 2,500 people have died in the United States in close association with taking the uh, RNA, the mRNA viruses, which are the most dominant ones in America. And that means they most of them have died on the first day of the first 48 hours. That is a direct association. When you have a pattern, it's causality. And the FDA has literally said, oh, they don't think any of these are caused by the vaccine. What are they talking about? They haven't done an investigation. And obviously it's a pattern. And I can tell you for years and years of working in legal cases surrounding the use of the data going into the FDA, going into the CDC, that if this were anything except the COVID-19 cover story, it would all the vaccines would be off the market. And they are being taken off in multiple countries around yeah. the world. Yeah, they sure are. Um, I want to be sure to give adequate attention to your book. I, mean, I just uh, printed out the table of contents. It's, ex it's an extensive 
coverage of the issue again for my listeners is called COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey by Dr. Peter Bregan, which is B-R-E-G-G-I-N and Ginger Bregan, whom you're just hearing about his wife. Mm. And the chapters run through, I, I love, I mean, you're talking about COVID-19 um, and uh, Fauci's role in it, the Made in China, uh, whether, whether it was intentionally released. Um, and also you talked about, uh, the, you have a chapter relating to killing patients to make inexpensive good drugs look bad. This is one of the things that were brought, was brought out early on by many doctors that hydroxychloroquine worked, worked well, ivermectin, inhaled budesonide. There were treatments that not only were not being widely prescribed, but that were being uh, crushed by and, and uh, aspersions cast, uh, suspicion cast, concern cast uh, coming out of Washington. Statements out of Fauci, NIH, kind of uh, diminishing the efficacy of these, of these treatments. And the doctors were coming to my show saying, why? I mean, I mean one doctor- well, we, we, know, we, we know why now. Go ahead, yeah, go we ahead. We absolutely know why. They engineered a, a new legislation in January 2017, which by the way, is the time when Bill Gates announced that he was developing something that would later on become, uh, you know, the, the Operation uh, uh, Warp Speed. He was planning it in January, announcing it. He'd already been working on it in January 2017. That same uh, month, January, they got passed in the con uh, Congress the Emergency Youth Use Authority so that they could bypass the FDA and get a red stamp without proving safety or efficacy if a drug was urgently needed or a vaccine was urgently needed. And the caveat was that if they had a safe and effective drug, it's written into the legislation, if there was already a safe and effective drug, then they couldn't rush through a drug or vaccine. So Bill Gates had already bet billions on it. Moderna had been working on this for three years. This did not start during COVID-19, three years beforehand. They were tooling up for this. They, they had just found out they could make COVID-19 into a pathogen in the labs, working with China. All this is in the book, documents. No, no conspiracy stuff here whatsoever. So if hydroxychloroquine were reasonably safe and effective, they could not have done Operation Warp Speed. They couldn't have done the great reset of bringing corporations and government together. They couldn't have paid millions and millions to the drug companies from federal agencies to work on the vaccines. All of this is about the billions of dollars empowering globalism and then about globalism which can only succeed if America is weakened. So if you put the two things together, make billions, weaken America, all in the interest of globalism, you, you can figure out what's, what's going on. Can I quickly say something unique about the book? Absolutely. Um, uh, we, we didn't want to wait for people to have to wait for the information. So the book will be out in June or July, but we want the information out. So we have actually arranged so that every time somebody buys an advanced copy of the book, they instantly get the working manuscript. No authors have ever done that before. So if you go, and, and where you go, it's a dedicated website. It's wearethepray.com wearethepray.com. Go to wearethepray.com, buy the book at a reduced rate, and you will get 
a working manuscript in your mailbox, hopefully at the speed of light, I mean instantly. And we're still working on the book and the manuscript. Many doctors have read it and love the book. We have introductions by the three top COVID-19 doctors. So as a psychiatrist, uh, I am a physician and a scientist, but I am so proud to have the frontline doctors, uh, 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 Peter McCullough uh, and um, uh, uh, Zelenko, Zev Zelenko, the men who got this whole thing together, and and uh, uh, Dr. Vliet, who who wrote the wrote the book on uh, on how to do this. And by the way, one other thing, not for me, but for everybody else in the world, you can get inexpensive safe treatment for COVID-19. They're lying to you. Go to the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. That's AAPS internet or AAPS.com. The American Association, no, I'm sorry, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. And you can very quickly through email or other ways get hydroxychloroquine or the other drugs that the doctor deems you need in any state in America, even if you live in New York like I do and Governor Cuomo says you can't. One of my family members basically had her life saved by doing this, so I really believe in it. She was better the next day of COVID-19. I am not exaggerating. This is a treatable viral disease, but they must make believe you can't treat it for the first time in history, Debbie, doctors have been told they can't use tried, true, inexpensive treatments to save lives. First time in history. It's, it's obscene. It's disgraceful. We need to stand up for liberty, for the patient-physician liberty. Uh, actually, I was going to go right to you. I think your website, wearethepray.com, right? Wearethepray.com. That's yep. the dedicated website for the book. And then our website's Bregan.com. Bregan.com. Well, you know, I will say, Dr. Bregan, you've put together a lot of pieces. I have had uh, many doctors on my show talking about uh, the efficacy of various treatments, um, the danger of when people get intubated and, and how that we right. they soon figured out that was actually harmful. At that point, the lungs had so deteriorated, it's very harmful. Um, but you're pointing out some really big pieces, and, uh, and I haven't pulled all these together in the way you just did. So back in 2017, the legislation you're describing that authorized uh, the rapid uh, emergency um, I can't quite read my own hand, but emergency authorization <laughs> to, to, to process treatments, a, including vaccines, if there was not a, otherwise a success, uh, with, without going through the, the success and efficacy standards they normally apply, um, if there was no safe and effective treatment. So you're really saying that the decision by um, Anthony Fauci, others in the federal government to uh, reject the idea that hydroxychloroquine could work, budesonide could work, ivermectin could work, all of the uh, statements they were, they were trying to label them as ineffective, dangerous, all the words they used, was really to prevent the public perception that there was a safe and effective treatment, because then it allowed them to push this whole vaccine, uh, vaccine kind of takeover of the issue, that it was orchestrated as of 2017, correct? Absolutely orchestrated. Johns Hopkins actually published a 
big paper that hardly anybody's yeah. heard about. I'm not talking about the one people know about, which was another in 2020. 2017, they put out a paper about vaccines and uh, with a mock COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, pandemic. But this is not the later thing in 2020, right. uh, in which they said we would have to basically crush citizen complaints and make believe that the new vaccine, which they called COVAX after yeah. COVID. Um, so there was a whole bunch of things happening in 2017. A foundation called SETI, CETI was set up by Gates, billions of dollars being pumped into it to uh, advance research on vaccines. All these people, wealthy people, governments, corporations, uh, including the, uh, the, the the corporation that got the first vaccines through, all of them were working together more than three years ahead of time, creating basically warp speed and uh, this government collaboration, which is, uh, is uh, being called the new, the uh, great reset, all three years ahead of time. I don't know how it's been missed. I missed it in the beginning. It's all on um, videos. Um, it's yeah. all there, and, uh, or in print. It's all there. Yep. Actually, your book, again, for my listeners, because I want to mention a couple of things about your book is called COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey, P-R-E-Y, by Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Bregan. And among the things you do in the book, and I, I love this because you're not just going from your medical perspective and your medical training, but you're really bringing in the entire uh, cultural and political environment in America today to, uh, because, it, because you're getting us around to the notion that what we sh how we should be thinking about COVID is not just, uh, should I take a vaccine, yes or no? Should I try this or that treatment? No, but recognize it's a fundamental threat to America's freedom. I've been on this path on this show many times talking about the idea in no other context of any kind of disease problem have we so fundamentally submitted our uh, surrendered our freedoms submitted to all sorts of shutdown of american society culture behavior churches everything shut down and it wasn't just that we surrendered to a rather onerous uh, very onerous and um an unprecedented closure of american society but we became a more submissive people it, we became, not me, not you, but a lot of people became just, just so afraid of what COVID might do that they just decided, I'm just going to wait for the government to tell me what I'm allowed to do, what I'm allowed to do, anything. And we became, we lost that, that American spirit of self-reliance and strength and independence. And you're saying that is all part of this design to end up having us be more submissive to ultimately this globalist agenda. Is that correct? Yes, and this is, I want to say, uh, just to give a sense of my background and Ginger's, this is not the first time we've taken on the giant federal government. Back in the 1990s, we discovered a eugenical federal, eugenics federal program to go into the inner cities of America to find out, quote, what made black children so violent genetically and biologically. And we took four years out of our lives. We don't get any money for any of our reform work. Um, and we stopped this program against African-American children. And I also want to say that my very first reform work was inspired when I found out that children of color, black children in the, at the University of Mississippi, 
in the 1970s. This is at Jackson. We're having their brains punctured with needles and having holes burned in them and experiment on kids as young as five. And Ginger and I wrote a book, The War, it's out of print now, The War Against Children of Color. So I, I just want people to know the breadth of our background and that we have fought for minorities, we have fought for freedom, all of our adult lives. But this is the biggest test of freedom since the American Revolution and the Civil War. The biggest test of freedom is going on now. And, uh, uh, you know, my heart quakes for, for what we're facing and what could happen if it goes much further and Americans are turned into docile people rather than the independent, fierce in defense of ourselves and our families, people that we have been since the founding of the country and even before then. We're unique in the world as individuals who will fight for freedom. We fought in World War One. we fought in World War Two, and yeah, we fought in misguided wars, but we have always tried to be a people. I don't know about our politicians, but as a people, we have wanted to fight for freedom. They're taking that away from us. That will be the end of freedom in the world. Could not agree more, and I'll tell you something. Some of the things you're saying today, um, I've talked to people around the country, whether they are political colleagues or talk show hosts or just um, friends from college and law school. And I think the hardest thing for most Americans who believe in our country, love our country, they cannot believe that everything they've been hearing out of Washington with respect to COVID, everything they've been hearing about, about the efficacy of masks, the need for a vaccine could be not only false, but could be part of some grand, uh, larger plan. And I think that for, for many people, because I, I'm the first, I will criticize a lot of conspiracy theories. I don't like conspiracy theories. Yeah. I've never listened to Q in my whole life. I don't even know how you find Q, I don't want to. But this thing, the whole notion of my talk show and anyone's um, determination to figure out life, what you should really want to get to is what is truth, not whether uh, how it's labeled, whether it's uh, labeled as far out, tin hat, conspiracy theory. What is truth? And everything you put in this book, I mean, I can tell from the skim I did from the table of contents, you've laid out the case that how we handled COVID in our country, the people in power in this country, whether they are just the financial elites, the ruling class elites or people in, in government, we're going to enable to, to use this this uh, attack this uh, COVID virus as a means to fundamentally transform America, fundamentally transform us into sub submission to the Great Reset that the left has wanted. And honestly, Marxist thinking people have wanted for decades. They wanted to fight that American spirit of freedom and free markets and, and just self-reliant um, optimism, upbeat spirit. So uh, I think it's incumbent on people to read what you've written because I, I there are so many facts. People kept saying, well, it doesn't add up. The numbers don't add up. Here we have hardly anyone dying anymore. We, we have the numbers are going down. The, the contagious numbers are going down. Everything's going down. But still, somehow, we have expanded efforts to control our population based on COVID. The behavior of the government does not make sense based on the facts we know. So we're about out of time. I'll give you the last chance for a closing point you'd like to make. I'll give you a factoid. I talked with a uh, physician from Australia yesterday, and they had in their main city in Victoria the lowest death, one of the lowest death rates and one of the lowest infection rates in the world, and yet they had the worst, worst 
crackdown. And I said, what's the connection to China? He said, we're a part of that new open road that China's building, which oh. tremendously under the influence of the communists. Folks, one last word. I can't be a conspiracy theorist. I testify in courts. I have been an expert witness at least a hundred times in courts and been verified many times over before courts, uh, uh, by federal courts, by state courts. I've had uh, 30 books published, about six of them straight medical books. I've published about 70 scientific articles, peer-reviewed journals. I am science-based. I did not expect to find what I found. Ginger did not expect to find what she found. This is all hard fact-based. And, and a lot of it confirmed now by many other doctors I've interviewed you know, on my own uh, little show. And just many doctors now, most recently, uh, you know, uh, General Spaulding talking about China in an interview I did with him today. This is real. We are in trouble in America. You know, I I'm saying we need, we need refounders of America. Join the refounders of America. We've got to get ourselves together to stand up for liberty. Could not agree more. Uh, I've just met you today, but I'll tell you, you're singing my tune. The whole point of my show is speaking up for the unique, extraordinary greatness of America, the yes. founding principles, the idea of liberty. We are unique in all the world, and it's incumbent on every generation to stand up and speak up to preserve this country. And I'll, the lo closing shot is you have, um, I said I want to talk more about the uh, vaccine passports. There's no reason for in, in order to protect the American population, no reason for the vaccine passport uh, plan to be in place, period, full stop, correct? Absolutely true. It's strictly the beginning of what they already have in communist China. They just yep. want to get us under control and under passports. This is no exaggeration. COVID-19 is a cover story. It's not even as dangerous as the flu for the vast majority of people in this country. Dr. Bregan, this was so illuminating. I hope we can have you on again. This was, Your book is fabulous. I will get the whole thing off the website. And I thank you so much for taking time to join us today. You bring out the best in me, Debbie. You just call and I'll be there. Thank you, sir, so much. Thank you for joining us. Well, folks, I was going to tell you, I'm getting text messages. Uh, the jury in Minneapolis has already reached a verdict. It was to be announced uh, basically 10 minutes ago. Um, so it's to be announced uh, 4.30 Eastern, 3.30 Central, or past 3.30. I believe uh, I have uh, websites up. I have uh, my texting buddy here telling me what's up. But the jury has reached a verdict. I hope it comes in before the end of the show. Um, I was going to do a little segment about my membership thing, but I think I'll put that off till tomorrow because I want to talk about uh, this jury verdict, whatever it's going to be. Normally, people assume, I mean, there were numerous charges against this officer. Um, normally, people assume when a jury comes back quickly in a criminal case, they assume the jury is going to let the person off. That's the standard lawyer's assumption. If a criminal uh, jury, a criminal case jury is back quickly, they, they found not guilty. Because if they're going to go to guilty, they have to go through each of the charges and can they get each juror to find guilty or not guilty on each charge. It usually takes longer. That's not a rule. That's a kind of a rule of thumb, but it's obviously, obviously not absolute. The jury has come back. And I will tell you, folks, I really, no matter what the verdict is, I really urge you, the biggest victim 
in this entire process has been the criminal justice system in America. The criminal justice system that is being bullied and harassed by leftists who've decided they are going to decide for America for the case. What is, what is the answer? They're going to decide how the jury should come out. These jurors, no matter what they come up with, I hope, are, I mean, I will tell you, I've been in a capital murder jury I mean, where the, you know, the, the, juror, the defendant was charged with capital murder and he had friends, uh, it's to be read in the next few minutes, uh, in, in the courtroom after we came back with our verdict. Um, and I, I, you know, I happened to be the foreman of the jury. Uh, we literally, all of us got escorted to our cars individually by a marshal, get in your car, get out of here. These juries, these jurors are heroes, no matter what the outcome. I still think there's a very, if there is to be a criminal conviction on any charges, I assume this officer uh, will have a very significant likelihood of getting a reversal on appeal because of the interference in his case, uh, in this case, uh, by political figures in this country for political gain. Maxine Waters did not show up at the courthouse um, in Minneapolis because she's deeply concerned about the jury system. She shows up for political theater. Uh, Al Sharpton's there, having flown there in a private jet, by the way, shows up to rally the troops. They are there to agitate America, to keep America racially divided, to encourage uh, people of color in America, to assume that our system is unfair. They, their very presence is an argument. Their very presence in the streets of Minneapolis is an argument. They don't believe in the criminal justice system in our country, and they are deliberately agitating the people, and they're deliberately attempting to sway this jury. So no matter what they come out with, uh, you know, we, we have to all stand up for our system. We have to push back. There need to be penalties for people who interfere with a the jury. They couldn't find, by the way, they couldn't find whoever left the pig's head on someone's porch, but uh, on that officer's porch. But any kind of criminal conduct, the answer cannot be as it has been in the past in many Democrat-run cities, let them riot. They're angry. Let them riot. Baltimore, that happened. Other major cities, we can't crack down. We, to, if we ever want to get America back with an orderly rule of law and an orderly criminal justice system, we have to act more like Governor DeSantis of Florida, who just signed a law yesterday saying, you know what, we honor the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, don't take one step toward rioting. Not one, not one smashed window, not one car burned, not one intimidated tourist or citizen. We, the only way to get America back on track is to hold people who are willing to break the law to push their point of view to hold them accountable. Um, I had one of the quick stories I was going to do today. I'll talk about the membership tomorrow. I'll get a slide ready. But I want to just tell you, speaking of how much politics sways what we think is true in this country, how much politics sways. Back on January 6th, as you all likely know, in my last little segment, back on January 6th, this was the day that the members of Congress, House and Senate, met together along with uh, then-Vice President Pence, whose job it was as President of the Senate, to, uh, to carry out this duty. They met to open the envelopes to look at the uh, votes that came in from the various states uh, from the Electoral College. Who is a, you know, most people, most years, no one even pays attention to this particular aspect. People wait to election night. Everyone's got a tally, understanding how many electoral college votes each state gets. They can run the numbers. And so the president is decided in the minds of the people on election night if you know, if you have actual results, which we did not this year. 
because we know the number of electoral college votes. So then it goes to the electoral college, and then the next step is to this meeting in Congress, which happened January 6th. I'm getting around to telling you that these are procedures in the Constitution set up for a reason. They weren't there just to like fill up and make more procedures because we like procedures. So January 6th, we had the meeting in Congress where many people were hopeful and some members of the Senate and some members of the House went along with this idea that because some of the states had had their electoral votes certified and their electoral electro, members of the Electoral College had certified the vote, those people, uh, the Electoral College vote was made before the states realized how much fraud had occurred in the 2020 elections, before people realized about how much the, uh, the mail-in ballot fraud uh, had wreaked havoc on the system, how much the, the interference with electronic voting machine tabulation software had occurred. The, the uh, members of the, the uh, legislatures in various states kind of figured out after election day, hey, wait a minute, something went wrong here. We're not sure we got the answer right. We're not sure we got the tally correct. So you had those people in some states telling Congress, hey, we're not too sure that we sent you the accurate answer about the vote count in our state. So people were hoping in Congress that the House and Senate would send back the votes, electoral college votes to some states. But they didn't do that. And it would have been unprecedented. It was permissible, but it would have been unprecedented. And uh, then Vice President Pence decided he wasn't going to do that. He didn't want to participate in that. So then we had Trump gives his speech across town on January 6th, tells the troops as the assembled masses in Washington, who by this time are well aware of all the allegations of election fraud. They're in Washington, you know, far away. I think it was a mile and a half away or something from the Capitol. Trump gives his speech. He says at the end, you know, I to go to the white, to the Congress to peacefully and patriotically protest, fight for an accurate vote. Then you had the whole incident in the in the Capitol, in the U.S. Capitol, where you had windows broken, people broken, violence, a very scary, alarming situation. As I've said enough times on this show, and I'll say it again, I did not advocate violence. I wasn't there. In Washington, I do not advocate violence. I did not advocate for any of the violence that occurred that day. I also said that there were people in Washington that day who represented the American left. You had Antifa and Black Lives Matter Marxist rioters in Washington that day also, assembling near the Capitol, apparently inside the Capitol. So the inside the Capitol, the, the you know, riot occurring in there was not just Trump supporters. It was a mix of Trump supporters as well as Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and whoever else happened to be there. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, and I really want to reinforce this to you. Just the way you were just hearing Dr. Bregan talk about the leftists seized on COVID as a means to take away American freedom. The leftists in this country, the left-wing mindset, the leftists who think never let a good crisis go to waste, seized on the January 6th incident at the Capitol to paint the picture, the false picture to the American people that what was happening in the Capitol was an insurrection, was an actual effort to take down the government, to you know burn the place down or kill people or something horribly violent. And the insurrection narrative was played out as the Department of uh, Justice, the FBI Department of Justice, investigated pretty much everyone who breached the Capitol that day. Everyone who went in 
whether they committed a crime or not. People were questioned, people were charged, people, and, and whether wh why they were there and how long they were there and what they did. The, the Department of Justice was more aggressive in investigating who got inside the Capitol that day than they were in the entire preceding year of violent, ongoing, massive mob-level riots in this country, in cities around the country, by BLM and Antifa. The determination of the Department of Justice and the FBI to track down every single person who entered the Capitol was unprecedented, especially as compared with their failure to do all that much about what was happening in the riots in the cities uh, around our country, in the, in the cities and towns around our country. But part of the narrative, and what I'm getting at, it's so important to understand is, part of the narrative was to try to paint the picture that there was an attempted insurrection that day and that Trump supporters wanted to commit an insurrection, tried to commit an insurrection, which did not happen, and to justify the now barbed wires around the Capitol. We have fencing, barbed wires, we have machine gun officers patrolling around the Capitol. All of that is to continue the effort to manipulate the American people to think that Trump supporters, all 80 million of them who voted for him, Trump supporters are uh, on the edge of insurrection, on the edge of, of trying to take over the government, on the edge of trying to over, and, and none of that is true. And the left knows it isn't true. And the media knows it's not true. But they get political mileage out of propping up that day's and I'm not defending the violent behavior of anyone that day. I'm not defending it. I agree. If you broke windows or committed violence of any kind, you have to be prosecuted. But I want to get around to what the, about the truth emerging in the Capitol. The, a part of the truth that is emerging is the Department of Justice had to put out a notice essentially saying, hey, you know what? As it turns out, even though we know everyone in the country, all the leftists in the country are dying to find, you know, uh, big numbers of prosecutions that we're going to we have a whole bunch of people committed crimes. The DOJ put out and all of the left wing media in this country, Politico and Slate and all those types had to run articles saying, hey, people, if you were expecting a large number of prosecutions, uh, not going to happen because it turns out very few people committed crimes that day. And most of the crimes committed were misdemeanors. I mean, you know, felonies are bigger crimes, misdemeanors, lower crimes. You might have had people commit misdemeanors. Very few felonies occurred. And so the DOJ is trying to tamp down the enthusiasm, the exuberance among leftists in this country, hoping the DOJ was going to be able to lock up a bunch of Trump supporters. But there were no facts to justify that. There were some people prosecuted or they're lined up to be prosecuted. Um, and people have, have, have pled guilty to some things because they don't want to wait for trial. or They can't wait for trial. But the point is, far fewer crimes than the left was trying to paint, many more misdemeanors and felonies, and also, the FBI has just acknowledged that there were no weapons found among the Trump supporters in the Capitol. Please process that fact. Pretty dang wimpy insurrection, wouldn't you say, if you show up at the Capitol with no weapons except your loud mouth. I mean, our flag, they show up with flags, waving flags. This was an insurrection, but no weapons involved.
please believe me, the left is manipulating this entire incident at the Capitol on January 6th for the purpose of painting an ugly and false picture about the Trump supporters, about conservative America, about the right, the, you know, the, uh, the people on the right in America. Well, now another big, big, big thing came out, and I want to make sure and tell you the details of it. So you remember that they talked about five people died that day? Five people died. And you had the impression from countless headlines that five people were somehow beaten to death or somehow murdered by Trump people. Okay, none of that happened. It didn't happen. The only murder, the only shot fired and someone killed was by a Capitol Police officer killing an unarmed American woman who was a veteran. And they have announced recently the Capitol Police officer will not be charged he or she is remaining anonymous. It's apparently a he. There's some speculation about who it is, but they won't conf officially confirm who it was and not going to be charged. No charge at all for shooting and killing someone inside the Capitol who wasn't armed. So that stands. The other deaths that were, there was a, uh, there were two people that had heart attacks that day, which as far as we know, they may have had a heart attack wherever they happened to be that day. Somebody else I mean, uh, there was someone else who was somehow crushed in, in, a run, uh, in some of the activity that day. But the big story, the big thing that's out right now has to do with the Capitol Police officer named Brian Sicknick. Brian Sicknick, S-I-C-K-N-I-C-K, who did die that day. He, di he didn't die there. He was a Capitol Police officer. He was in the Capitol that day. And many of the left-wing sources in this country, many left-wing sources reported that he, including the Washington Post, all the big left-wing outlets reported that he was beaten over the head with a fire extinguisher and later die from his injuries. That was the story put out. So painting a picture of wild, crazy uh, conservatives beating a Capitol Police officer over the head with a fire hydrant. So now the truth comes out. That never happened. He was not beaten over the head with anything. In fact, the statement by the DC medical examiner, the medical examiner himself put out this statement Francisco Diaz, the, uh, the medical examiner for Washington, D.C., Brian Sicknick, most unfortunately, died from natural causes. He had two strokes, strokes, two strokes the day after this event. And this medical examiner went on to say, so the day after January 6th, he went on to say, number one, that there is no evidence, zero evidence of any type of internal or external injury. No head injury, no be beaten over the head with a fire extinguisher. That didn't happen. Well, then the other story the left tried to flow as well. Yeah, but some of the people who got inside there, they had bear spray, you know, some kind of really powerful spray you use, I guess, to scare away bears. Bear spray, and that bear spray was sprayed, and, and you know, this might have gotten in his face, and that's what he died of, results of the bear spray. That also, the DC medical examiner said, uh, no, untrue. He also said, um, he went on to explain, um, the autopsy found no evidence, zip, zero, nada, nothing, no evidence that this unfortunately 42-year-old officer suffered an allergic reaction to any chemical irritant. Because the argument had been maybe whatever he was, if there was spray it got near him, maybe it, it caused his throat to seize up. No. No, no evidence. And I want to, you know, I, I am 
thrilled that this is true. I don't actually want anyone to be murdered. I, I'm, I'm against murder, and I'm against people being violent. I am really incensed and outraged that this story, months later, that was January 6th, who we went through February, March, April, where three and a half months later, we finally get the DC medical examiner who had to have known what? Within a week, what the answer was, the story finally is out now saying, you know what? Actually, the whole lie we told about the fire hydrant thing never happened. I mean, the fire extinguisher didn't happen. No injuries, no interior energies, no external, no cuts, no bruising, nothing was on this guy. Sadly, and I'm sorry for him and his family and his loved ones. I'm sorry when anyone passes on. I, I, I really am. I, you know, I, I'm sure it was heartbreaking. But his death the day after January 6th had nothing to do with what happened on January 6th. So now we are at a point where the insurrection was by unarmed people who hurt no one. The Capitol Police the only person who committed a violent murder that day was a Capitol Police officer shooting at a, a, a woman who was unarmed. She was, this is a former military person, she was climbing in one of the windows that was broken. I mean, she apparently did not break the window to get in, but people, when, they, when the doors got closed, people broke windows to get in. She climbed in, that's when she was shot. Now, I mean, I'm going to guess in any other context, I want you to picture the reaction of the media if somehow, you know, the officer was white and the person who was shot was black, or maybe the officer was white and the person shot black and it didn't happen at the Capitol, but happened in some other riot. I mean, just imagine if in some other riot in the middle of one of these uh one of these things we were watching um, uh, all last summer uh, with the Black Lives Matter um, and Antifa and all those other groups, if a white police officer had shot and killed a black um, protester. Now, to be clear, both the people involved in this Washington situation, Brian Sicknick, as well as the uh, woman, uh, the military person, um, who, veteran who was killed, were white. I'm not saying race was a part of it. I'm just getting at the way the media treats stories is always with a narrative. It's always with a, well, can we find some way here to divide America, to stir up racial hatred, to stir up racial suspicion? Uh, there's nothing to this story in the Capitol Hill, you know, and so the officer gets to remain anonymous, no charges of any kind, no question about his use of force compared with, I mean, this is kind of an amazing actual segue or, or comparison while I think about it. The officer in Washington who shot and killed the uh, woman veteran who was unarmed, he's going to have no charges at all, and she wasn't attacking him. She wasn't attacking anybody. She was trying to get in the Capitol through a broken window, but she wasn't attacking anybody. Now you look at what we're about to hear about. We hope before the show ends, I can't tell. I keep watching my news sources here uh, to see if we get the story out, what the verdict is going to be um, in the Chauvin case. But, you know, you compare that to Chauvin case. This officer is trying to restrain someone who has been resisting arrest, who has been, uh, and, and who said before he was pinned down on the ground, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And the entire nation is watching with bated breath to find out what's going to happen uh, to this officer, uh, Officer Chauvin. Well, you know, we may get the end of my show and I can't, yeah, we, we gotta wrap it up. I'm sorry to say, I was really hoping the verdict might come out. Um, I will certainly write about this. I will certainly talk about it tomorrow's show that whatever the verdict is, 
I think actually the, uh, what they've got to do now um, in Minneapolis, as this verdict is about to be read, they have to be careful to protect the jurors. They have to be careful to be sure the jurors can be escorted safely, no matter what the verdict is. They have to get them out of harm's way. They've probably got to get them all out of their homes and somewhere else, because unless this jury did exactly what the mob demanded, uh, it demanded, uh, as in the form of Maxine Waters demanded yesterday, unless it did exactly what was demanded of them, you know, they're going to have to be, they're going to have to watch their backs. They're going to have to be very careful for a long time because we live in an era where they, the mob has been convinced in this country, yeah, you get to kind of run things. You just tell us what's going to happen and we're all so scared to death of you that we'll let you do it. But um, we are apparently out of time and I can't hold on any longer, so I will do the end of the show. Uh, tomorrow we'll talk about this for sure. Oh, oh, tomorrow we have Sam Sorbo joining us. Uh, her husband, Kevin Sorbo, was on last week. Sam Sorbo joins us tomorrow. We'll talk about this verdict. I have so many more stories in time. I have so many more stories in time. Never can get to all the stories I want to talk with you about. Um, but I love talking to you every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. And now I'll go and tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started the day talking about the Floyd Chauvin mistrial. Uh, apparently didn't ha have to go there, but judge in the Chauvin trial denies the motion for mistrial over Maxine Waters' actions, but raised the possibility that Waters may have provided grounds for overturning any guilty verdict on appeal. I would say so. Expert witness in the Chauvin defense, a former California resident, his former house in California, found with a severed pig's head and blood all over the front porch. Whether it's genuine outrage of an honest, misguided American or paid thuggery, this is a grotesque interference in America's criminal justice system. Americans are watching their judicial system be dismantled by deliberate mob tactics and egged on by an elected Democrat congresswoman whom Pelosi will not even denounce. Americans must rise to defend their rule of law and refuse to be governed by mobs and truth emerging january 6th at the capitol why it matters official medical examiner findings police officer brian sicknick capitol police officer brian sicknick died of natural causes no evidence of internal or external injuries no evidence of a reaction to bear spray or any other substance the mainstream media ignited a firestorm throughout the country by lying about officer sicknick's death Mainstream media claims Sicknick was bludgeoned by a Trump protester wielding a fire extinguisher. I really would love to see the mainstream media issue a massive apology for that really defaming the followers of Donald Trump, the supporters of Donald Trump. This adds to earlier FBI DOJ finding that there were no arms found in the Capitol on January 6th. Some insurrection, huh? The swamp mainstream media insurrection narrative was meant to stop examination of the election fraud. That's exactly why they made this narrative up. So silence everyone who wanted to talk about election fraud. It became something you can't talk about. The swamp mainstream media insurrection narrative was and is a manufactured deception. The damage that mainstream media is doing with this willful deceit is incalculable and will not be undone by retractions and corrections. The mainstream media will reform, if at all, when they fear going bankrupt. So do your part. Help them go bankrupt. Don't listen, don't read, don't subscribe. Shut down mainstream media and punish them for the way they manipulate America. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. 
You can go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links, read the links of stories from today. You can subscribe to our newsletter. I can't encourage you strongly to subscribe. Go to the website, americacanwetalk.org, hit that subscribe button. You get a once a week newsletter from me. Great way to catch up on the show on the weekends. Great way to share the show. We'd love to have you do that. And we now have a membership thing going, which I will tell you more about tomorrow. So thank you so much for tuning in to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you-